Well, our Lord's Supper is, is always a special time for us as a church family. And we want to keep on trying to do our part to make sure it's a meaningful time for all of us, a time when we remember our Lord. But it's also an opportunity for us to think about our union with Jesus. That's mostly why we call it communion. We are in communion with Christ. There's a, there's a special connection with Christ and then with each other as well because of what Christ has done. All that was accomplished at the cross and, and all of that was, was activated by our uh, trusting in Christ's accomplishments. So it's that connection with Jesus that we celebrate at communion. And, and that all perfectly leads into the last part of Mark chapter 6. From verse 30 on... Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about the necessity of being connected with Christ. He's actually here using some real-life experiences, some of the things that were happening with he and his disciples as they were traveling and as they were ministering, and he's thrown in a couple of miracles, all of this to show his disciples that he is enough, that he is sufficient, that Jesus himself is all they need. That everything revolves around Jesus. The lesson I believe that he's trying to ingrain in his disciples and in us is to teach us that if you have Jesus, you have everything. And you lack nothing. Now, I'm telling you this at the beginning because it's not super obvious if you just read these two stories and the summary at the end. So let's go to the stories and we'll see how Jesus makes that point. These are, these are two great stories and if you've spent any time in Sunday school or in church as you were growing up, you're familiar with these two accounts. The first one from verses 30 to 44 is the story of Jesus feeding 5,000, it says 5,000 men. It doesn't say how many women and children were there. And he does this when all he had to give them was five loaves of bread and two fish. And the next story from verses 45 to 52, the story that uh, Pastor read for us, is where the disciples are out in a lake on a boat in a storm without Jesus. Well, until Jesus decides to go uh, buoyant on them and steps into the boat, and as soon as he does that, storm over. And the chapter ends with then a summary of what happens when they get to the other side of the lake. But as we've been seeing, if you've been with us as we've been going through Mark's gospel, it's the link between the stories that help us to see what Mark wanted his readers to know about Jesus. And here again, when we put these two stories together, we find out a little bit more about what's going on here. We can see that connection in verse 52. Verse 52, right after Jesus gets into the boat, it says there, while starting at the end of, uh, of verse 51, it says, And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's talking about the disciples here. After the miracle of Jesus coming into the boat, it says, They were astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. They were astounded about... Jesus on the water, this story, because they did not understand about the loaves, which is the last story. So what is it that they didn't understand? 
that Jesus wants them to understand? What should we understand from these two events so that our hearts aren't hardened like the disciples were? Well, let's look at these a little closer. Verses 31 to 44. Since we read the other story, let's, uh, let me read this one. Mark 6, verse 31. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into their surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So here we have an incident in the life of Jesus where he's talking with his disciples. Now the 12 had just come back from being out in pairs on a ministry trip, preaching, doing all kinds of miracles, and now they're back. But the people still want a piece of their time. To such an extent, it says, that they can't even grab a bite to eat. And so Jesus says, let's get off by ourselves and and rest for a while. And so they set off by boat to what's called a desolate place. And it doesn't work. (laughs) The people actually run around the lake, picking up more people as they go, and the whole lot of them get there ahead of the boat. But Jesus looks at them and sees their real need. He has compassion on them, it says, and he starts teaching. But now it's getting late, probably... Late afternoon, starting to get a little dark, and the disciples realize that these people are hungry. And so they have a suggestion. They suggest to Jesus that he send them away so they can get themselves something to eat. Now, that sounds like a very reasonable thing to do. The disciples are compassionate too. They, they don't want these people to go hungry. Then verse 37. But, now you know, This isn't going to go the way they planned. But he answered them. Have you ever had that happen? You think you've done everything the way the boss wanted you to do it, but then he suddenly throws a curveball at you. Well, that's what happens here. They maybe thought Jesus would have said, good work, fellows. You know, you're you're starting to get it now. Great suggestion. But no dice. But he answered them. You give them something to eat. And we already read the rest of the story. 
Jesus amazingly and miraculously feeds the entire crowd of 5,000 plus. But here's the point. If you look at the sequence here, and if you look carefully at Mark's words, you'll get some clues about what we need to learn from what Jesus did here. First, Jesus wanted to be with his disciples. Come away by yourselves. But when that alone time ended prematurely as they, as they got off the boat, they, ended, they wanted to go to a desolate place, but the only alone time they really had is that trip across the lake. And so when it ended, Jesus is okay with that because he gets to help a crowd, a crowd that was in need of compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd, he says. And he meets that need by teaching them. But when the disciples tell Jesus to send them away there in verse 36, now mark those words, send them away, Jesus, in effect, says, no, don't do that. I want them to stay. The disciples actually interpreted the need correctly. They, they needed food. And Jesus actually fills that need only in a far different way than they ever expected. He fills that physical need with rich spiritual meaning. But the point is that he wanted the crowd to stay. They were exactly where they needed to be. They were with Jesus. They were with God. And when you're with God, when you're in the, in the presence of God, there's no better place to be. I mean, you can't improve upon that. And so he fills these needy sheep without a shepherd by teaching them. And then by feeding them. He has exactly what they need. They don't need to go anywhere else. They don't need to be sent away. He can provide exactly what's necessary. His provisions are sufficient for everything that they could possibly need. And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now the disciples are really stumped. And the next few verses help us see the, the impossibility of Jesus' suggestion. They haven't got near enough money to buy what they need to feed them, what they need to feed all these people. And when Jesus asks them to do an inventory on what they do have, it adds up to only five loaves of bread and, and two fish. And so from here on in, they can't do anything about it. Jesus takes charge. If they were going to get fed, it would all depend on what Jesus would do. And it seems like at some point that when Jesus was, was blessing the small fit of, uh, bit of food and when he was breaking the loaves and, and in the time that he was giving it to his disciples, somewhere in that time it just started multiplying. So much so that it fed 5,000 men. Amazing. But I love the short, concise explanation of the result there in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. Great verse to memorize. They all ate and were satisfied. Nice and short. You just need to know the context. And it's a wonderful verse to hide in your heart. How beautiful is that? It's not, it's not like these people all just got a crumb out of those five loaves and two fish. Whatever they received, it completely satisfied all of them. In other words, it was sufficient. What they received from Jesus was sufficient to satisfy their need. Friends, do you, do you see the spiritual significance here? Can you see the truth to which this is all pointing? 
when we have Jesus, we have everything. He's the fulfillment of everything that you need. When God sent him to this earth as a man, he was the fulfillment of all uh, Old Testament hope. All the other things that looked like they might be the answer, that looked like they might satisfy, somehow fell short. They were not sufficient. Whether it was the sacrifices by which sins could be forgiven, or whether it was the temple that represented God's presence, or or whether it was a priest like Samuel, or or a king like David, they all gave us a taste of God's goodness and, and of God's provision, but they all fell short of expectation or of complete satisfaction. But with the arrival of Jesus, our needs are totally satisfied. We don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to go anywhere else. As Christians now, we look back at what Jesus did, and all we need to do is respond by putting our faith in Christ alone as we sing. The miracle of the 5,000. It's, it's the only miracle, really, that's recorded in all four Gospels. As the Gospels were being put together, all the writers came to realize the significance of this one event, and they had to include it in their account. In fact, in the Gospel of John, after this miracle, after the calming of the sea, has that same sequence there, but then John writes about Jesus not only providing the bread, but also the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus does so much more than just fill a physical need here. He satisfies all our spiritual needs too. And so he says things there in John 6 like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. We're down in verse 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am that bread. These stories point to God's provision. And so just like God in the Old Testament provided manna for Israel in the wilderness to fill their need for food. He now provides Jesus to fill our need for salvation. And Jesus, just like that bread, is all satisfied. So as Christians, now looking back on what Jesus has accomplished for us in his life, in his death and and in his resurrection, which we celebrated last week, which we celebrated this morning, Our response should be to keep finding our satisfaction in Jesus. We're we're so tempted in this day and age to to turn to other things to satisfy us. We might know in our heads that Christ is sufficient, but when it comes down to it, we end up going to, to what Romans calls lesser things to find our satisfaction. And some of those things might satisfy us for a time, but they too always fall short. They will never provide total satisfaction for our hunger like Jesus does. I love how the disciple Peter responds just a late, little later in John chapter 6. He, he actually probably didn't even understand how right he was when he said this. Some of the people there at following Jesus, they couldn't handle what all of this stuff about Jesus being the bread of life would mean for them and about following him. If, if what Jesus was saying was true, they couldn't do it. And so, and so they just up and leave. And then he turns to the twelve and says, do you want to go away as well? Well, do you remember what Peter says? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life, of eternal life. So my friends, my, my brothers and sisters, when you have Jesus, you have everything you need, not only for this life, 
but for the life to come. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this story, but maybe we can think of the the leftover food, the 12 baskets of, of broken pieces and fish, as pointing to the fact that this food is for us today as well. It satisfied those 5,000 men back then, but there's plenty left over to satisfy you and to satisfy me these many years later. Don't look anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. Jesus is the one that will satisfy your longing for eternal life. Trust him. Put all your your marbles, all, all your hopes in the basket of his accomplishments for you. Well, that's the first story. Let's take a quick look at the second story. Mark reports this next event, but it's the same day, and it seems like Jesus actually, in this one, he actually initiates and orchestrates this event to bring home the same lesson that he's getting to in the feeding of the 5,000. And so after they've collected all the leftover food, it says that Jesus, mark this, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. That word made is translated in other places as forced or, or compelled. He, he, he forced them to get into the boat. What's going on here? Well, in John's account, he adds another detail. This is John 6.15. It says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain. And so, apparently, in amongst this group of people in the crowd who thought that Jesus, were people that thought that Jesus was going to be the one that was going to overthrow the Romans. And so, Jesus and his, has this, his disciples had to get out of there. This was not why he came. Now, the disciples probably wanted to stick around after the miracle, you know, and chat with the people. And, and uh, I mean, it was a great thing that just happened. But instead of going with them now and getting into the boat even, Jesus gets them into the boat. I think he maybe even pushed them off. But he goes up to the mountain to pray. Why didn't he he go with them? Well, obviously he he needed to talk to the Father. But but Mark seems to focus this on the disciples because the scene in the very next verse goes right back to the boat. There in verse uh, 47. So that makes me think that Jesus intentionally wanted to illustrate what he just taught them before with the loaves. He wanted to show them that Jesus is sufficient. And so first he makes them get into the boat. Then the end of verse 47, he was alone on the land and he saw from the land that they were making headway painfully. Your version might say that he saw them straining at the oars. Another version says he saw them being battered as they rowed. The important thing is here that I found interesting is that he saw them. This is not a a, a foolish decision by the disciples to be out on the boat during a storm. Jesus is the one that made them get out there. And now he sees that they're dying out there. They're rowing like crazy and they're not getting anywhere. You could say that Jesus got them into this predicament in the first place. But it's all part of his plan. Why? Well, he's about to teach them that without Jesus, they're in trouble. But with Jesus, it's all good. They're about to see through desperation and struggle that Jesus is sufficient. Storms will come, no doubt. There will be strain, there will be hardship in this world. That's a given. 
But even later on, Paul doesn't say, forgetting what lies behind and, and coasting forward to what lies ahead. No, what does he say? He says that he, he knows he will share in Christ's sufferings and forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. The secret for Paul, the reason that he could do that, is that he knew Christ was there with him. The secret was that he was, as he says so many times later on, Paul, he says he, says he was in Christ. And when he was in Christ, everything was possible. And Jesus, back in Mark 6, is aiming to teach his disciples this important truth of the fact that his presence is sufficient to meet their needs. He is sufficient in his provision, and he is sufficient in his presence. Without Jesus, they were in a position of danger, position of fear, and trying to get things done on their own strength. But with Jesus, they were in a position of safety, position of of reassurance, position of doing things not in their own strength, but in his strength. The clues, again, are in the details of this episode. In the first story, the disciples want to send the crowd away, but Jesus wants them to stay. And he makes them possible, makes it possible for them to do exactly that by meeting their needs in, in a supernatural, miraculous way. Well, in this story, it's actually Jesus that sends the disciples away. He, and he, he, he does this to, to the disciples... He does to the disciples, really, what the disciples wanted to do to the crowd. He does to the disciples what the disciples wanted to do to the crowd. And and he's going to show them what can happen when you are away from Jesus. But when he sees them struggling, it says, in verse 48, he came to them. He changed the situation. He came to them. Those are sweet words. He was away from them, but now he came to them. It actually says later on, the next line, he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass by them. That sounds kind of weird. Why would he want to go past them? But you have to see this in, in Old Testament language. It really just means that he wanted to reveal himself to them. In Acts, or in Exodus 33, when uh, you remember the incident when Moses wants to see God's glory. God says there, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God was revealing, he was showing his glory to Moses. It's the same thing when God encourages Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 19, after Elijah starts to wonder whether God is still there. He's being chased and, and pursued. But in verse 11 of 1 Kings 19, he tells Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. God revealed himself to Elijah in in a mighty wind. He wanted to assure him, to reassure him of God's presence. Ironically, in Mark 6, God shows up personally in Jesus, and here he stops the wind. And here again, he does it in a supernatural way, by walking on the sea. Listen, God, God coming to men is always supernatural, isn't it? In the Old Testament, whenever he reveals himself, there are miracles everywhere. At Christmas, when God came to man, Jesus was born of a virgin. And when Jesus comes into our lives, there's there's a miracle of new birth. We are born again. Nicodemus could not understand that. 
It could only, how can a man be born again? And so he understood that as a miracle. But this fact of God's presence, my friends, you have to know it's a, it's a foundational and indispensable part of your faith. You need God there to be there with you in the person of Jesus in order for you to be with God in a life-giving relationship with him. The whole Bible leads to this. What we're talking about in the, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, all of the Old Testament leads to that. All of everything that's written afterwards reflects on the fact that God comes to be with us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the one that brings everything all together. And so just remember this, if you remember nothing else, separation from God brings danger. Togetherness with God brings ultimate security and safety. And togetherness with God only happens through the Son of God. Jesus is the one that makes all the difference. You have to do something with Jesus. You have to respond in some way. Jesus comes to confront us. This is a a constant theme in the Bible going right back to Genesis. The problem at the end of the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve are kicked out. And they're kicked away from the presence of God. And and there's actually an angel guarding them from getting back into the presence of God, into the garden. But ever since then, ever since that fundamental separation, God starts to provide a way to reverse that situation. And it culminates with Jesus. Note, it's he that does it. He has to do it. We can't do it. And so, so he gives little snippets of that along the way, hinting that he will be fully present with man someday. He does it with Abraham. In, in Genesis 17.4, he, he promises Abraham, my covenant will be with you. We already looked at Moses, but when he first meets with Moses from a, another miraculous situation, you got this talking burning bush, listen to the promise that he gives Moses when he tells Moses that he'll, he's going to be the one that's going to lead his people out of Egypt. Exodus 3 verse 4, Moses, this is God talking now, here I am. Verse 8, I have come down to, I have come down, notice, to deliver my people. Verse 12, I will be with you. God comes down to help then he makes the same promise to Joshua when they, when they take the land. Joshua 1.5, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you wherever you go. Same thing with Gideon in Judges 6, the Lord is with you. When we get to David, when, when David wants to build the temple, the prophet Nathan comes along and tells David, says, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. And when he reminds David of his presence, he says, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. It's in 2 Samuel 7. This is just a, we could mention other verses as well, but this is just a constant drumbeat in the Old Testament. When God is with you, there is safety. And God will be with his people. But if you want to try to do things without God, or if you want to join with other gods, many of the kings learned that there was danger and peril. They tried to do things by themselves or they lined themselves with other gods. God called that spiritual adultery. Trying to do things without God. And the tragedy at the end of the Old Testament is that God removes his presence from the temple in Ezekiel 10. And so this idea of God being with his people is part of his reassurance and 
and his courage-giving promise for the nation. But it's also a pointer for when God's presence would be with people in a personal way in order to save them from eternal destruction in hell. And so when we get to the New Testament, we read these great promises of God's presence. Just a few chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, All things are possible with God. Or John 15, 5, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But this fact of the presence of Jesus, this connectedness with Jesus is foundational to our faith. And so on this lake, Jesus is teaching a practical truth that separation from Jesus will cause distress. But his presence brings safety. His presence brings peace. Jesus is preparing soil for the great truth of the union with Christ. The problem of being separated from Christ is the great human problem. Without Christ, we are without hope. Using the image of Mark 6, we can keep straining at the oars, but, but we never get anywhere. We can keep working and doing and straining, but our efforts fall flat. Our efforts are, are always tainted and mixed in with, with lawlessness, with, with selfish motives, with sinful desires. But with Christ, there is safety and peace and rescue. Why? Because he was, make up another word here, efforting and would later work what we never could. He was living a perfect life. And he would later die, not because, not for his own sins, because there weren't any, but for ours. God made him to be sin who had no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's only with the accomplishments of Jesus in our corner that we will find ultimate safety and that we need not fear death and punishment. Take heart, Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And that summary in verses 53 to 56 drives it home. People are getting made well. How? By coming into contact with Jesus. It's as the people began to bring the sick to wherever they heard he was that they are made well. Verse 56, wherever he came and and whenever they touched even the fringe of his garment, they were made well. What is this? This This is not something magical or mystical. This is proof positive that, it, that it's Jesus' provision and Jesus' presence that makes any of us well. We need a touch from Jesus. And that touch from Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. And so I pray that you might learn the lesson of the loaves. That you might learn the lesson that the disciples would not learn Yet. Their hearts were still hard at this point so that they couldn't understand about the loaves or the storm. But it was only after the death and the resurrection of Jesus that their hearts were softened and they understood. But once they understood, it turned their lives upside down. They now understood what it meant to be with Christ and in Christ and they wanted everyone else to understand too. And that becomes their proclamation then, their cry of their heart. Be reconciled to God. Don't be separated from God anymore. Be reconciled to God. And you can do that through Christ. 
And so I pray that you might understand this great, and put it in a way, a theological truth this morning. Jesus is the bread of life that fills your greatest need. Jesus is coming to you this morning from the storm that makes up your life without Christ. I pray that you would look to Christ. I pray that you would, you would see him as sufficient to meet your great need and to give you the safety and peace and the rescue that only he can bring. Let's pray together.